Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where our guests pick stories which they think are really important but are somewhat unreported. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by two illustrious guests. We have Jamie Bartlett, author of The People vs. Tech, The Dark Net and Radicals, and Oliver Below, journalist and author of Moneyland. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Jamie, I'm going to go straight in to your underreported story. Well, I mean, it's a, it's an article by me, so I naturally <laughs> think everything I do is underreported and deserves more coverage. But uh, it's, a, it's an essay I wrote for Unheard um, about the sort of the fascist style of politics that I think social media is creating. Now, we see a lot of individual stories about racists on Twitter or homophobes on Facebook or whatever, but something much deeper is going on here. Communication theorists have always said that the the structure, the incentives of the platform of the medium of communication that you're using, Marshall McLuhan, of course, most famously, incentivizes certain types of behavior. And I think the way that social media is structured is actually incentivizing a form of politics that's fascist in its mode, in the way that it operates. It's sort of this desire for constant speed, the way that it encourages people to be highly aggressive, highly confrontational, to react without even being able to think properly about the arguments that they're making. And also this kind of very obvious drift into tribal politics that I think we're seeing all around us. That is, this is not unrelated. All these trends are not unrelated to the way that social media is set up. I would completely agree with you. I think social media is designed for sort of sound and, and fury and explosions of um, emotion. And, you know, you win on social media by just being as divisive as possible. And I, I completely agree. One of the things I just wanted to ask you is why would you say it makes fascists of us? Why does it not just make us behave badly, behave like spoilt children, shouty, ranty. Why the word fascist? Well, because the focus of fascism, um, when we talk about it in politics, is is the particular set of ideas, the sort of cult of traditionalism, obvious racism, um, hatred often of modernity. But fascism also has a particular style of politics that's always associated with those ideologies as well. And Umberto Eco wrote about these in a brilliant essay in the 1990s for the New York Review of Books, where he talked about, um, for the fascist, for example, it's important that the supporters act without reflection, because to reflect on an idea is a sign of weakness, because it might somehow imbue you with reasonableness, for example. And I thought, well, that's a brilliant description of a Twitter mob, isn't it? To react without even thinking or reflecting. Well, that, that, I mean, in fact, to reflect is a bad thing on, on Twitter. I mean, if you reflected, it well, might be... Well, you've missed you may... the boat, haven't exactly. you? You're not going to get... You know, and, I, and I mentioned this in the piece that I, I know people who rush to get their denunciations in very quickly, lest someone else beat them to it. Well, I, I mean, I think we've all been guilty. I mean, when, you, when, you, when that horrible moment when you might get into a Twitter row with somebody... It becomes this sort of I've got to get in, I've got to get the final word, I've got and it's it's so damaging. But do you think that, you know, tweeting, responding without thought, without reflection, do you think that happens do you think that's happening across both ends of the political spectrum? Or do you think one end is worse than the other end? No, I, I prefer to see it as something that's 
in all of us in some way are are guilty of doing simply because of the incentives of the of the platform and, and it's not to blame it's not to blame the platforms for doing this or the designers but the reality is that the way the newsfeed works the way the advertising model works you have to be quick you have to be immediate if you're more emotional and more divisive and more polarized it's more likely to get shares and retweets and comments and so you're sort of subtly influenced all the time into a certain type of behavior that theorists of fascism would recognise as being part of fascist modes of behaving. So, I mean, what I would probably say is I do think that, you know, the designers who are brilliant, brilliant people have designed a system which does play into our human instincts. And the, like, for example, just the dopamine hit you get when some, you write something and it's retweeted a lot or liked and, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, there was a guy from, I can't remember if it was Facebook or something like that, and I think he'd left Facebook and he said... Um, I wouldn't have invented if I could go back in time. I wouldn't have invented like the like button or something like that because Sean you're saying Parker, that. So that's right. But I thought that was. Um, yeah. But I think you're right. I think it is. I think it is human. I think it is human instinct. Um, and I think I think all sides are. It's just the it's it's the terms of trade now. But I don't think it's the tribalism as well. It's not just the speed. It's the way that I think it incentivizes you to. To take just a side, I'm on this side, you're on that side, yeah. and we're we're total and absolute enemies, and we are never going to find common points of agreement. Um, and the strange thing is, we talk constantly that it's the end of the age of deference, and yet we also seem to be at a, an era of hero worship. Our great leaders of our political parties, Theresa May's may be an exception here, but a lot of political movements now have this kind of the wonderful tribal oh, yeah, leader there's the who, demagogue at the, at the who top. can do no wrong. Yeah, whether it's Corbyn uh, or Trump or, and, or and whoever. desperate desire for a saviour of the centre. Who's it going to be? Who Who's yes. going to return and, and the centre will it'll all be OK again for the centre? You know, is, exactly. Is, and is David Miliband, the king over the water, will he return and, you know... Yeah. yeah, like Bobby Ewing in the shower. I think not. <laughs> Political tribes, which is what we've... The way I see it is this incredible explosion of information and connectivity is sort of smashing open the, 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 the neat boxes of representative democracy that were built to kind of constrain Definitely. some of our worst Definitely. instincts. They're being, they're being thrown open and, and we're turning into tribes and tribes need tribal leaders. And I think that is why we have, we have the kind of well, hero no, I worship. Well, I think we'd all absolutely agree with that. I mean, Oliver, what do you think can be done about it, if anything at all? Or should anything be done about it? Isn't just this the way things are now and everyone's very tribal and emotional and just gets it all out there? Well, it's interesting. I thought in, 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 the, in the article, the, the, the article that deserves a far greater readership, of course, <laughs> I mean, you, you, you make this really interesting point that, that when our sort of primary mode of communication or, or expressing ideas was the book, you were naturally reflective because you have to be if you're going to write, you know, 60, 70, 100,000 words. You're going to struggle to do that if you're not going to reflect at least a little bit. And so and, and so that's, I mean, I suppose it's, it, a return to the age of the book wouldn't it be lovely? But I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, apart from my book, obviously everyone read my book, but but um, <laughs> but it's not going to happen. Everyone, I think we have to recognise that, that, the, that the, the, you know, the Twitter is here to stay, or if not Twitter, an equivalent of Twitter. And you end up with the deranged situation where, you know, someone says call off the dogs and then someone says don't call us dogs and then someone says it's ridiculous that he didn't mean to call you dogs and then someone says yes he did and, it, and that's it and everyone's forgotten what it was that, that he said call off the dogs about in the first place and it's just you know I, I don't I mean what, what can you do about it I don't know because it's all about yeah like you say the dopamine hit of having a little heart and, and boom and you've got 10,000 likes and isn't that lovely and I think 
I suppose just to give the the counter view, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of negativity. I mean, the 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 abuse. I think, by the way, we will look back on this period of time as well, and really study the effect on mental health that all of this has had. And I think it will be huge, and it is huge. We are seeing it now. But on the other side, there is the argument that the social media and the instantaneous ability for everybody to become a commentator and a critic and a, is is very um, it's good for democracy and it has helped you know encourage people to become more political and more interested in things. And why shouldn't people be allowed to sort of react instantaneously and with passion and spirit? I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, to be honest, my, I mean, I tend to have one solution to all problems. My solution... By your book. Yeah, but, A, by my book. But the solution, I think part of the solution to sort of solving money laundering, which we'll talk about in a bit, is is the end of anonymity or the end of anonymity for those who can afford it. I, to be honest, I think anonymity is a big problem online. The, thing, the things people say because they're hiding behind, you know, Brexit man, one, two, three, four, mm. rather than Robert Smith of Coventry, you know, that is an issue. You know, the fact that you can slag someone off in a way that you really, really wouldn't do if you were in next to someone in the pub. The truth is that while there are obvious de- democratic benefits to all these platforms, the ones you've outlined, I think sometimes they blind us to the realities of what's actually going on. I mean, it sounds great. We all have a voice. But for a lot of people, you're just shouting into the void. Yeah. Or you're receiving lots of different sources of information. You've never had more information, but it's very hard to make sense of any of it. So you don't actually really know what you think and you can't form an informed decision about any of these questions or issues. So I'm not I'm sure we have more information. I'm not sure whether we're actually any more knowledgeable or more insightful or wiser in our politics. I suppose you could argue that have we are we ever at any point you know we the people incredibly sort of you know we've all been um manipulated by propaganda of some kind at every stage i suppose the question is you know what wh- where do we think the the benefits outweigh the the downside and do you think there's a way that for example political communications could be could be tempered or could be done more responsibly or do you think we're just now in the wild west but i think that's where we're heading and i think what we <sighs> We are coming to terms with a totally new way of talking about, learning about, thinking about politics. And it's going to take some time for both our institutions to respond, our regulators, our politicians, but also us, what the norms are that we expect and how we behave. And that's part of what this article is about. If if everyone recognises that actually we're all kind of responsible for this, we are, even the people that detest fascism and it, as a pure ideology, to recognise that, my goodness me, maybe I am just Behaving. responding instantaneously, not thinking, abusing someone, not realising it, stirring the pot up further. Maybe each of us have a responsibility to sort of inform, yeah. thoughtful, reasonable discussion, and therefore we can we can do it. Well, thank you, Jamie. That was, uh, I mean, it's a really, really great piece. Um, I think the language is very uh, provocative, but I think you've really made us think, and I, I think that is absolutely right. It's very easy, um, and I think tech companies and political leaders have responsibility, but you're right, we as individual, you know, we are the people that make um, these platforms work, and, and we should pause and reflect a little bit. Um, right, Oliver, over to you for your fascinating unreported story. Well, I mean, this is so... so. The un- unreported story, it was in The Guardian, one of their long reads. It's, it's a chapter from, from my new book, Moneyland, available in all good bookshops. You've got a book? Yeah, um, I do. I, I, just I, I didn't mention it. <laughs> but, um, but essentially, the, I mean, the, the, the book came out of work I did in Ukraine when I was looking at after the revolution. And Ukraine is, is a sort of country that's been rotted 
by corruption by its rulers have have stolen and stolen and stolen until there isn't very much left and and i was i i became i suppose fascinated by the role of london in as a final destination for this money and as a laundering center for this money and how we often think of corruption as being something that happens sort of over there elsewhere in places where foreigners live and we don't think enough about our own role in in enabling it and 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 so I started looking at the sort of the role of offshore and offshore centres and, and offshore anonymity in allowing this money to be stolen and hidden and then spent. And it and it started to I started to realise that a lot of the problems in the world, a lot of the things that we talk about a lot, trace back to this essentially um rootless finance, the idea that finance is answerable to no one. I mean, if you look at the way inequality is growing, every year Oxfam releases its its inequality reporting. Two years ago, the bottom three and a half billion people in the world owned the same amount as the top 62. Uh, this year, it's the top 42. So, I mean, that's you know an astonishing growth in two years of the way that, that the country, the planet is becoming more unequal and individual countries are becoming more unequal. And then you see this sort of great flows of dark money pouring out of places like Russia, China, Ukraine, Nigeria, money that is just being stolen, hidden offshore and then spent in places like London and New York. So Moneyland, the book is about this. And I, and I sort of tried to trace the flow back to look at the moment when this began. When did the, the money break free in this way and become answerable to no one? So it's really the story of how offshoring started. Uh, yeah, particularly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and it, there is this there is a moment. It's an astonishing moment in, in 1962 to three when when Warburg's a London, a city of London bank. And the city of London in those days was, was moribund. There was nothing going on. Um, it, it, it was dying as a financial centre because there was these very strict financial controls imposed at the end of the Second World War to prevent money being free and undermining currencies and undermining democracy. It was very, very strict. You couldn't move money from country to country. And the city of London looked at this and, and Warburg's, this one banker, Ian Fraser at Warburg's, looked at this situation. It was very annoying. It meant London couldn't earn a living. They couldn't do the banking that they wanted to do. And so, and they found a way around the controls. And it was very incredibly technical the way they did it. It took them a long time, about nine months between 1962 and 1963. And it was an absolutely amazing nine months. This is the same nine months which gave birth to Beatlemania. Wow. It's nine months that included both the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Ecobinein Berliner speech. And, and so it's sort of a revolution in pop music and culture, a revolution in geopolitics and a revolution in global finance, all in the same nine month period in 1962 to three. And and it's and I mean, obviously, because there was so much going on else in the world, it's not surprising that this the, the invention of what's called the euro bond, this this offshore, totally anonymous tax free instrument that was sort of everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, that it should have gone unremarked. But actually, compared to the others, that those other things which we've, we've got much more attention at the time and since this has had far more profound significance. This was the creation of offshore, the creation of the City of London and the and it was the moment when 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 money broke free of any democratic control and it, and it gave birth to all these things like kleptocracy, like this sort of soaring inequality. All of this is, is, a, is a consequence of that one invention. And at the time, was it designed um, for good or was it designed for ill? It was an entirely neutral tool. Essentially, there was a lot of money in Switzerland, which was mainly tax dodgers money, which had been hidden in Switzerland by people who didn't want to pay tax. And there were bankers in London who wanted money to package up to lend to people. And all they did was find a way to connect these two things, the money that was sitting there doing nothing and them who were sitting here doing nothing. And they thought, we'll take that money, we'll lend it out. And it was very difficult because there was lots of, of laws and regulations in place to stop it happening, but they figured out a way to do it. But what it did was it meant that suddenly if you'd stolen money or avoided tax, it wasn't, you couldn't just keep the money passively, any, but you could, you, could, you could suddenly enjoy it actively. You could, you could earn a living from it, you could invest it, you could 
travel around the world with it. And it became astonishingly profitable to avoid taxes and, and loot the treasury of your country. It wasn't just something that you could do and keep the money under the mattress. You could make a fortune out of doing it. And, and it's, this is what you know, gave birth to kleptocracy. This moment, this is when suddenly the, the, the sort of government of Nigeria started to loot their country because you could, and, it was brilliant for them. And when did people start to think, hang on a minute, when did people, commentators, you know, financial commentators, the, the industry itself, when did people look at this and suddenly think, hang on a minute, something's, something's going wrong here. This money, this is now being used for sort of bad things. Did anybody like, you know, in the 70s or anything like that say, wait a minute, I think this is bad public policy? Not for a, not for a long time, and partly because of it during the Cold War, a lot of the country was still locked behind borders. Money didn't flow out of the Soviet Union and China. And I presume, of course, there's, there's no transparency yeah. with it. And But then after 1991, after the Soviet Union collapses, suddenly the, the money becomes not just a sort of a, a river, but an absolute tsunami, because all this money pouring out of the former Soviet Union and then pouring out of China. And it, so it's at the end of the 1990s, by the end of the 1990s, you start getting people at Oxfam saying, hang on a second, we, we, we're giving all this aid to, to developing nations, but the amount of money that's coming back totally dwarfs the amount of money we're sending there. You know, the, the looting is way bigger than the sort of sticking past plaster we're putting on the wounds that are being caused. And, and, and since then, there's been a sort of steady effort to try and undo the damage, but, but from a very low base. I mean, into, the, into this, this millennium, in Germany, a bribe paid abroad was a, was a tax-deductible expense. You know, wow. we, we, have a, we have come a long way, but, but we're still at sort of 1% to where we should be. I mean, the, you know, there's a trillion dollars a year being stolen from the developing world. And a trillion, it's one of those numbers, million, billion, trillion, it's difficult to know the difference of them. But, but, but to say, I mean, if you had a million dollars to count them in dollar bills would take you about 11 days. If you had a trillion dollars, it would take you thirty-four thousand years. Wow! That's the difference between. I mean, it's a massive amount of money, and 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 it's and all of that money should be, you know, building hospitals and, you know, building roads, paying for police officers and so on. And instead, it's being spent on yachts and luxury property in in, in London, and and essentially driving prices up in in the cities of the West beyond the reach of anyone normal being able to afford them. It's, so there's no upside to this at all. And Jamie, what are your thoughts on this on this story? Yeah, it's a stunning story, really fascinating, and I really enjoyed it. But it, in a way, it was also quite depressing because you write in it that it sort of started off a chain reaction where every country then had to compete with whoever had the most relaxed regulations. And so all these different countries are then chasing this money around the world. And it's sort of this, this, this terrible race to the bottom, and, and it doesn't it's not exactly clear where that stops or if it can be stopped. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. So we often talk about sort of the Thatcher-Reagan revolution of deregulation. Actually, all they were doing really was acknowledging what had already been created by the financial sector. They were removing laws that had already been circumvented, you know, a decade, two decades previously. Um, and, and that's essentially the, the problem is that the city of London became this space where everything went. And suddenly, you know, the Americans had to race to get to get their regulations down to the level that London was at in order to catch up. And then everyone else had to do the same thing. And and because money, the money goes wherever it's treated best, as it were, or wherever it's interfered with least. So, you, yeah, you end up with this ratchet, this constant towards deregulation. And in order to try and counteract it, everyone has to act together. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's what happened at the end of the Second World War because of the unique circumstances. Everyone acted together and imposed a system. But but the idea that now in the age of Brexit and Trump and that there could be some form of sort of joint action is is impossible. I mean, it's very interesting in Adam Tooze's new book, Crashed, which is brilliant. I recommend it to everyone. Um, he talks about this moment after the financial crisis of the G20 when they when Sarkozy really wanted to act against the tax havens. 
And they had this meeting and everyone was up for it. Even Britain was up for it. But the Chinese leadership said absolutely no way. And the reason is because they all their money goes out of China via Macau and Hong Kong. And if Sarkozy's reforms had been put in place, mm. then that couldn't have happened. And it's, it's so essentially, as soon as one person doesn't want to do anything, it, it puts a, a break on any concerted action. And so does that mean there's no point in terms of policymakers and politicians even trying to, is it, is it, well, a bit like looping back to our social media thing. Is the genie out the bottle? Is it just, is it irretrievable now? I mean, no, I, I mean, I don't think it is. I mean, you know, you know in Britain, we are sitting on the, the world's great international financial centre. So we have... Well, a, you could argue our laws still could be tightened up. On oh, of course. What I mean is that we should, you, that we could do an awful lot on our own. You know, we have this, you know, totally unregulated company formation section. We've got all these tax havens that kind of do slightly whatever they want and still do. We have, um, you know, very, very lax anti-money laundering regime. And we have in Britain 20, was it, I think it's 23 different anti-money laundering agencies, one of which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's office. And I mean, I'm a actually big fan of Justin Welby talking. I mean, I think maybe Britain would be better if we just put him in charge in a kind of theocratic <laughs> way. But, you know, that's a different point for a different time. But he shouldn't be in the anti-money laundering game. He should be concentrating on, on you know, his but, flock. But what, what's the point if, if, let's say, you know, we have a very progressive government that does all of this stuff. What difference will it make if this, as you say, money is borderless now? Well, I mean, it would make a difference because, you know, it, 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 the, the money that is being stolen from places like Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan is doing tremendous, tremendous damage. And it's not just doing damage, you know, in a sort of touchy-feely human rights way. It's doing damage in a national security way. Putin is exploiting this system to, as, as a way of undermining us. Um, you know, this 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 kind of anger over corruption is one of the things that led to the rise of Boko Haram. You know, if you talk to American generals who who commanded forces in Afghanistan, they say the Taliban is 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 a pinprick compared to the damage caused by corruption. Yeah, it's corruption that's the real danger, and and this and this is all created sort of um, essentially a consequence of offshore and this sort of rootless, borderless money that flows around the world, nosing out weaknesses, and and we. Just, just not enabling it ourselves would be good. We would be acting in our own best interest. It's like, okay, America isn't going to act against climate change, but, but that isn't stopping the rest of us trying to do our bit. And yeah. that, it's like that. This is a, this is a, a common enemy. And sooner or later, everyone will come around and realise that. And, and, and we should be acting because we just should, we'll be making our own country a better place as well as the world. Well, we, can oh, I just start? So I found it very, very interesting. I, did, I didn't actually realise that the gold standard was given up partly as a result of this, this, is, I, this. It was just it couldn't it couldn't keep buying up enough gold to deal with all the dollars that were replicating as they were being sent around the world now but funnily enough a lot of especially libertarians are, are, are bringing back the idea of the go we need to go back to the gold standard now that's I mean, the answer what do you think about that i mean it's it's it, well as long as offshore exists the gold standard is impossible because the point is that 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 yeah. the idea that you can replace you can swap the amount of gold for a fixed quantity of dollars or whatever currency you name is only possible if if the amount of dollars can be constrained as long as there's fractional reserve banking and it's happening somewhere that you don't control the regulations obviously that's not possible because banks can keep lending out dollars and you can keep buy gold with them and and then you have to make more dollars and it you know it's not possible so essentially i don't really understand the libertarian fixation on the gold standard i'm, yeah. I'm to be honest I, i'm i maybe i haven't engaged with it enough but it isn't as long as we don't have that post-war keynesian system of tight capital controls and money constrained behind borders, the gold standard is impossible. And mm. and I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. It was a very rigid system and and, and all that. But but in, at the time, it was a very elegant solution to a problem. Um, that solution is gone. It can never be restored. We can't have capital controls again. It's, but but we need to have a new solution to this new problem, which to my mind is this is a transnational problem. We need to have a transnational action 
with transparency over who owns what. And once we have that, the the police will be able to do their do their job. I mean, I talk to FBI agents who say when they're doing a big money laundering investigation, half of the time, half of their time is spent trying to figure Track out time. who owns yeah. what. You know, mm-hmm. if means without this, they'd be able to do twice as many investigations. Yeah. It's it's an absolutely stunning figure, and and you know that the and some I mean the, some of the examples in the book are you know absolutely extraordinary. FBI buildings, you know, which they rent and they have no idea who owns them. You know, they're renting a building they don't know who off. I mean, this is like it's totally bananas. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for that. And again, it's just interesting. I think there's some similarities between both your stories, um, particularly uh, towards the end of what you were saying, which was even though. It's not a perfect solution. Even Britain taking a lead could cauterise some of it. And, and, you know, a bit like you were saying, we all should um, take responsibility for some of our actions on, on social media. But again, with so many different so many different areas of public policy, it's interesting. Transparency is absolutely vital. Transparency is often the, the first step in, in trying to sort of sort things out. But absolutely um, fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Right, we're now going to move on to our heroes and villains of um, the week. So the first um, hero is not a hero in many people's eyes and has been hugely controversial, and that is Serena Williams. Jamie, what's your take? Hero or villain? Well, I'm t- I just... I... <laughs> I love Serena Williams, obviously. Great, greatest greatest of all on. time. Greatest of all time, no question. But I I couldn't help feeling like she was being a little bit um, moody, a little bit nasty, a little bit mean, a little bit aggressive and angry. I mean, just sort of behaviour that... I know she's upset and frustrated, but she's the greatest ambassador of the sport. And to be screaming at a referee like that in any sport, I think is pretty bad for the game. And I didn't like it. I mean, I like everything else she does, but I just didn't like the way that she was picking out that umpire for that kind of vitriol. See, I, I took a different view. I mean, that tennis, I mean, just so I'm sure our listeners will know about this, but this was uh, Serena May, uh, uh, sorry, Serena Williams challenging uh, the umpire at the US Open final um, about how she was treated. I took a different view. Look, I, I don't think she behaved brilliantly. I think she she did get very, very angry. But then I think she was judged um, in a way that was different, as she was saying, that a lot of her male counterparts have been judged. Yeah, but she and, was accusing that umpire of being sexist. And I think he, he has was... let things slide from other um, from other players. I mean, I thought what was so interesting, just looking back, someone has done an entire time sort of thing of all the um, other high profile. I mean, he's cracked down on a lot of male players as well, but he has let a lot of people off with things as well. And for me, I think I thought she was a hero because I think women are conditioned, whatever walk of life you're in, to not to not really kick up a fuss because, as you said yourself, you know, you get seen as aggressive, angry. I think no, but I would have said this if it was Novak Djokovic doing it. I'd have said the same. I would have said but I don't she, really like a tennis player screaming at a referee. But they haven't. They weren't censured in the same way. They hadn't suffered the absolute vitriol that she has had from from people. And I just think. Um, there was a cartoon that someone did afterwards and it was a classic sort of black woman trope. It was kind of her looking incredibly aggressive, like the angry black woman. And I don't know, lots of um, lots of people have said, oh, she's a disgrace and, you know, she behaved really badly and she, she should be made to apologise and all this kind of thing. She, she did do a press conference. She's been fine. She lost the game. I think she has suffered quite a lot. But for me, I actually just thought it was quite refreshing to see a woman not behave like the good girl and actually just say, you know what, I've had enough and I am angry. She didn't swear, by the way. Lots of other male players have sweared at the at the umpire. But Oliver, what do you think? Well, I think what was really classy about her, and I'm, I, I will sort of defend her to the last, what I think was classy about her was at the end, 
when the crowd was responding very negatively to the umpire for what he'd done, she said, stop everyone. You know, this is her first Grand Slam. She's not won one before. Come on, give us some credit for that. Which, okay, she was, but she recognised that, that, you know, it wasn't her moment and it hadn't gone her way. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And, it, and, and I, that is how a champion behaves. Okay, you don't, it doesn't always go your way. You recognise you've lost. You recognise you've been beaten. I totally agree with you, however. I think that there have been male players who've got away with, 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 with that kind of behaviour and not had that kind of, that, that kind of punishment imposed upon them. I mean, I'm from Wales. I'm a rugby fan. And I like the way rugby, play, rugby players respond to umpires and ref, the referees, rather. They don't, you know, you don't shout at the, at, the, at the referee. If you do, you get yellow carded and all that. And I don't like the way in football, for example, they mob around the referee and shout at them. To my mind, what happened to Serena Williams is like in a football match when everyone mobs around the referee and shouts at them all the time that one of them totally randomly got given a red card. And I, and I think that would be unfair because because you have to treat everyone the same way. I agree I that would be unfair. Yeah. I just, I, I'm not sure that makes you a hero. When you get red carded for that, it, it, it makes you, yes, it's unfair. Yes, there's double standards. I love her as well. I'm just not sure whether that behaviour warrants a hero, the, the hero I'll of the I'll tell you why for me it was a, a, a hero <laughs> thing. It's because I just think, I think she's a, a, an individual who, who has overcome like massive, massive um, barriers. But I just think in a, in a post Me Too world, what I think is really interesting is that women in you know lots of different walks of life are sort of having the confidence to speak out about things and call things out which they see as being unfair. And I looked, I mean, I've watched the footage a lot. I've watched it time and time again. She was not threatening. She wasn't actually rude. She didn't use any swear word. She made an impassioned, very articulate argument and so i kind of applaud her for that and i'm not I saying think, she's a villain i'm not saying she's the villain but you, of the no, week. But you were saying why is she being here so i'm uh, just giving yeah, you why yeah, i think yeah. she's that's why in my view i still think her behavior wasn't great and i think if you could go back in time but i do applaud her and i think she is a heroine for 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 in the moment saying how she felt and i think for a lot of women particularly women of color who don't feel like they have a lot of power I think sometimes just having the ability to have a voice should be applauded. Yeah, and, and, and I also think she's a hero for the way she, it, it having happened, the way she then stepped up to, to, to defend, you know, her, her, her victor, you know, who, who'd won her first Grand Slam and she stepped up and said, no, this is her moment. I thought that was class, really, yeah. you know. Right. Now we're going to move on to our villain of the week, or might not be a villain of the week. It's up to you. You guys can decide. Um, so I'm afraid the dreaded B word is is raising its ugly head, Brexit. Um, and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group um, is uh, going to publish some uh, information about how they would do uh, Brexit uh, differently. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> And so the um, they've got lots of ideas, including significant tax cuts, and new military spending. Are we going to have a like a Star Wars Mitchell's shield over the Falklands or something? Yes, I think we are, and I think we'll have a giant penny farthing tr- sort of travelling around the, the the island to defend us. Um, now, Patrick Minford is the economist behind it. So, would we say hero or villain? You know what really annoys me about Brexit, and I'm not, you know, I'm I voted Remain, but there you go, we lost, it's fine, get over it as it were. But what particularly upsets me, not annoys me about Brexit, is that what I was talking about earlier, this issue about, you know, rootless money, the, the rich getting very much richer, this feeling that democracy doesn't have any control over money anymore, I think is one of the motivating forces behind Brexit. I think a lot of people said, this isn't working. Why is it that I can't afford a house? Why is it that, that you know, these 
rich people get away with everything. You know, it, it, let's take back control. And I totally understand that motivation. But but this is a the problem with this is is it's a medicine that not only doesn't won't solve the problem, but will actually make it worse. Because because in order to deal with with transnational money and these flows of of rootless, entirely control free money, we need to act transnationally together with our European partners. And there is in fact one island in the world that though inequality has increased, it has in- increased far less than it has anywhere else. And that is the European Union. And in the European, you know, the, the amount of property owned by the top 10% in the UK is about half what it is in the United States. You know, we're bad, but we're not as bad as most of the world. Um, isn't and there that- also a deep irony? Wasn't, isn't, doesn't Jacob Rees-Mogg's company decide they're going to possibly offshore well, they, post-Brexit? They've moved fund, some funds to Dublin in order to sort of Brexit-proof themselves. And, and this is something which, again, is in common with a lot of the leading Brexiteers. If you look at that, you know, Boris Johnson's employers, the Barclay brothers, they don't just live in a tax haven, they own a tax haven. Um, you know, that, who, who can you say that about? And this is a, it's an issue for, because they're a sort of kind of playing with Britain in a way that it doesn't touch them. And this is, this is sort of, they're moneylanders, to, to my mind. And I, I, one of the things that hasn't really been talked about in terms of, of Brexit, I don't think, is that the European Union has actually started to stand up to some of the big tech companies. They seem to be sort of big enough, strong enough, a big enough market that they can really affect some difference on the way these companies behave. And at a very, very important moment with yep. the, all the different developments in Internet things and artificial intelligence and so on, we're jumping out of the most sort of powerful regulatory body. So we have to find a way to ensure that we stay aligned somehow with that because this battle between governments of the world and tech companies is going to be a really big defining one. And it's absolutely the well, EU's I mean, actually started could, to do something. I mean, and, and in anti-money laundering, the same. The fifth anti-money laundering directive, which is the new EU body, is really good. It's really strong. It is world-leading anti-money laundering you know, regulations and, and will really, really help crack down on the sort of kleptocrats and the people who are trying to undermine our democracy. And we need to keep aligned with this as closely as possible. So just to play devil's advocate... Are you saying that there is no way that if we leave the EU that we can't align ourselves and we can't play our part on these important issues? Just that it's harder. It's harder. Um, Maybe in the same way that it's harder for us to strike a good trade deal um, when we're part of a smaller block. The market that the tech companies... But just just to push on that... Let's say on the on the money laundering yeah. thing, it's in everyone's interest to sort of try and same way with kind of crime, you know, it is in everyone's interest to partner up. Why do we have to be part of the EU to play our to do our bit? And well, I mean, we, the thing is, the EU is the only block in the world that is serious about doing something about this problem in a in a systemic way. Um, it's, I mean, I suppose technically we could align ourselves with the EU outside the EU. But then what's the point of leaving the EU? Mm. It, you know, the thing is, the point about leaving the EU is we're taking back control. We're doing things ourselves. So, but if we're just going to say we're leaving the EU, but we're just going to adopt everything they do anyway, then why bother? It, it seems an, an, like a totally needless operation. And so if we're going to do it, and, and as the sort of, you know, the, the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and so on say, it's about cutting taxes. It's about changing our regulations. It's about opening ourselves up to global trade. It, that those don't sound like the words of people who say, you know what, we're going to align ourselves with the fifth anti-money laundering directive and the sixth and the seventh, because it, that's clearly not, you know, cutting red tape. Well, thank you so much to both of you um, for coming on the show today. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, so just to recap, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, there are books to be read. There are books to be read. There are books. Jamie Bartlett has written The People versus Tech, The Darknet and Radicals. And Oliver Below, journalist um, and author as well, has written a book called Moneyland. Do check them out. And also um, do go onto the Unheard website where um, Jamie has um, written his piece. And I believe Oliver is about to publish a piece. Yeah, it should be coming soon. in yep. the next couple of days. Brilliant. OK, well, thanks very much for listening. This has been the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. Mm-hmm.